The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Uh, it's going so well, it feels like it's time for a special episode. Oh, I love these special episodes because they're less work for us. Sometimes that's true. Uh, sometimes it's actually just the the compilation of lots of work over many, many years finally all coming together, which is kind of what this is. I love it when a plan comes together. So this is War Stories. War Stories 5. That's right. Episode 5, uh, a wonderful conglomeration of a bunch of war stories, including some that have never been heard, but we've teased. <gasps> I know, I don't even want to say which one <gasps> it is, but the last one, the last one, you got to listen to the end, the last one is fantastic. We love these war stories. You're just going to hear us queue up the people and then just let let the DPs uh, tell you their crazy stories. There are some people that we have on here where it's like, your whole career is nothing but war stories. We appreciate those. <laughs> Uh, all right, so uh, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do two at a time. First up is Tom Siegel. Tom Siegel has a wonderful story from uh, the movie Three Kings. Ooh, oh, yeah. I remember it's this great. one too. Yeah, and then right after Tom Siegel is uh, Lige Sarkey. Uh, Lige, uh, of course, is an indie producer director, and he and I worked together a couple of years ago to make a make a movie called uh, Concrete Kids, which you can watch right now on Amazon. He's got a great story about a horror movie that never quite saw the light of day. Oh man! <laughs> yes, and here we go. War stories. Well, you know, film is like war, like combat. There's a lot of uh, military analogies we can make in movie making. And I did a movie about war called Three Kings, and for better or worse, the lead actor and the director were often at war. And there was one day when it came to a head. And um, the director, uh, David O. Russell, was frustrated with what some of the extras were doing in the background. Sort of, they were non-professional extras. And he kind of ran out into the field and sort of manhandled this one extra, which George uh, Clooney, who was playing Archie Gates, our lead character, took offense to. He was, he was um, you know, appalled by the way that David was kind of manhandling this guy. They got into a bit of an argument and it started getting heated. And I didn't realize all of that was going on exactly. Um, I was overdoing something else with the camera and I was right next to our producer. And I remember looking over and seeing George and David looking like they were about to come to blows, turning to my producer and saying, you know, I think your leading man is about to get in a fight with the director. And he looked over and he went, you're right. And then I saw him turn around and walk in the opposite direction. So I realized at that point that cinema can be war and a lot of times you're a lone soldier. War stories. So back in my early acting career, I um, think I was still here in LA and I met this dude, this big, huge guy who's from Texas, who was a friend of a friend that came into where I, I, my roommate used to work at Baby Blue's Barbecue. And anyway, he was making a movie in Texas and he was doing this whole like indie thriller horror film. And, and I auditioned for the role and I 
got it and we all had to go to Texas but we were gonna do this like super homegrown like we're all staying at his house and I went out there and you know it was a bunch of mostly Texas actors that were there I was the only one that came in from LA and uh, we're doing it really small it was this horror movie it was called Stabbing Cabin It was fun. Like, I was so excited about doing it and so excited about this script and so excited. I was like a lead and there, there was like these pretty girls that were also in it. It was just all of us, but we were staying at this dude's house, right? And he had this basically farm in the middle of like southeast Texas or east Texas, Houston, middle of summer, hot as shit. Like everybody sweating their asses off, bugs everywhere, 18 hour shoot days. It was complete hell. The only way we would make it through is we like start drinking halfway through our, our shoot days and I just kind of it got a little messy but you know the director was you know he was overwhelmed to say the least and uh, it was just it was too much to do in too little of time and you know I remember one time he was just he was sitting there it was fucking so late and he was sitting in the director was sitting in the chair watching the scene take place and he was like nodding off because he didn't sleep it was just a really tough indie film right and it came down to the end where none of us were sleeping. I was sleeping outside on this couch in his garage where these dogs that would come up and like lick my face all night. Like, I don't even remember taking showers. It was fucking crazy. And we decided everybody was so burnt out and we weren't getting finished in the time allotted. And we're like, okay, everybody go home. We'll come back in a couple weeks and finish this movie. Long story short, the director and the producer got in a fight. And I never went back to Texas. The movie will never see the light of day. And those guys, I don't think, ever healed what they were fighting about. And it just sits on a hard drive. Shortly after doing that movie, there was like, there's no way I'm doing this acting thing anymore. Like, we have no control over the result of how this shit gets done. So. I mean, as far as like a turning point in, in what I wanted to do at least was like, I gotta at least try to have some, you still don't have control, but like at least you can be responsible to make sure this stuff gets seen. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. That had to be 15 years ago. I wonder what happened to Stabbing Cabin. I mean, that was pretty heartbreaking. I was gonna be a big star from that movie. That's a joke. War Stories. Next up is Dan Neese, who is a favorite human being of mine. Just like the guy, the guy is so awesome. He is wonderful. And also just, you know, one, one of the most influential Steadicam ops who ever lived. Here is his war story. Years ago, when I just moved to Hollywood, I'd found this little apartment that was down in sort of a basement, but it had its own courtyard. And then I stayed there for a while. And then I moved up into an apartment above that. One day I was coming in, I was bringing my equipment back into the back door of the building and another friend of mine saw me there and he said, you ever been to Chile? And I said, no, I haven't, but I'd like to go. And he said, okay, well, I've got a friend that's looking for a Steadicam guy down there. We'll send you to Chile. Well, I get a phone call and I have several phone calls back and forth between this guy and Chile. So I'm, I'm going to go down there and the night before I'm going to go, Pinochet's there and, and they're, they're having a sort of a coup go on. Pinochet's the dictator. I'm looking at the television and I'm seeing things, explosions in Santiago. Um, turmoil everywhere, you know, and I'm supposed to get on a plane to go there the next morning. So I get on the plane. 
I fly down there. I don't know anybody in Chile. It's just me and my Steadicam flying to Chile. In the time between I left and the time that I get there, Pinochet's been deposed and they have Alwyn as the new president. I get picked up at the airport and I'm driven around by the DP and we're riding across Santiago in a Volkswagen Beetle and the sun's hitting me in the face. And out of nowhere, he turns to me and goes, you have cock face. And I'm thinking to myself, cock face, should I just bean this guy? Should I hit him? And then he looks at me, he goes, cock's feet. And he points to my eyes where my eyes had, I was squinting in the sun. What we would call crow's feet, he called cock's feet. We end up going over the set. They just opened up the Patagonia Highway, so I thought I was being flown down there to shoot something on the Patagonia Highway. No, we end up in a warehouse shooting an office supply commercial. They've flown me all the way to Chile to shoot in a warehouse, an office supply commercial. We do it. They have to buy money on the black market to pay me. And I come back with my pockets bulging with $100 bills, flying out of Chile with my life and my steady cam and make it back to Los Angeles in one piece. War Stories. This is Jeff Cronoweth, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. Here's a little war story on the, uh, whilst shooting uh, Social Network. As you know or may not know, that the story takes place of uh, students at Harvard, and Harvard is traditionally very reluctant to allow you to shoot on their campus, and especially our story, which has students fighting each other and fighting faculty, so uh, we weren't allowed to shoot on there. In order to kind of really stay true and give the audience a feeling of the university, we wanted to kind of embrace at the very beginning in the title sequence of Jesse Eisenberg and running back to his dorm room and going by some of the iconic sites in Cambridge area and near Harvard. So uh, there's a gate, which is the original oldest gate there, the, the archway that's very iconic of Harvard. It's very dark at night and, the, and there's no way to see it. So we had this like conundrum of how are we gonna light the archway without getting in trouble with Harvard and being able to see it on camera. We came up with this idea, like we threw all kinds of things, like having having somebody uh, have some kind of medical incident and having an ambulance with their headlights on the other side of the gate arrive, have uh, an electrical company truck drive onto campus and put a light out like they're working on something. And we finally settled on this idea that we built this cart, battery packed cart with two lights on it, and we hired a mime and the mime took the lamps on campus, turned it on, mimed out of our shot, but illuminated the archway so that Jesse could run by. And the notion was that if, uh, if campus security came, by the time they got the mime to stop miming, because he can't hear you, that we would have accomplished our shot. That's my story. Even on $70 million movies, you still have to go back to your film school techniques and tricks to kind of accomplish shots. War stories. So that was Dan Neese and Jeff Cronenweth, two amazing people. And who do we have next, Ilya? Uh, next up is Tony Libatori. Tony Libatori, of course, a fantastic storyboard artist uh, going back in time. He was on the show a long time ago, and he's got a fun war story. It's coming up right now. I was watching the Gladiator Special Features DVD, and I saw as one of the options on the menu storyboards. When I clicked on it, I saw all these beautiful illustrations by an artist named Sylvain Dupree. 
he had done these beautiful key scene illustrations for the tiger battle at the uh, end of the fight with Maximus. That was the first time I had ever seen storyboards, and I was like, well, I could do that. That was one of the uh, the first times I had ever really had come into contact with storyboards and saw what it was, and at that point decided, hey, you know, I think that might be something that I would like to try and do. At the time, I was working at a screen door store. That was the first time I had access to the internet. Believe it or not, the screen store is not very busy. People aren't walking in and out getting window screens all the time, so I had a lot of downtime. So I'm researching online how to become a storyboard artist and trying to get as much information as I can. I come across this uh, kind of editorial piece that said, so you want to be a Hollywood artist. This guy's saying, well, being a storyboard artist is nearly impossible to do. Finding jobs is impossible. Getting on a film is impossible because you got to be in the union. Getting into the union itself is impossible. You might want to try and find an agent, but that might not even be the best idea because agents are fucking vampires. The whole industry is shit. Can I help you? No. Beyond this, no, I can't help you. If you're still not deterred by all this, you know, good luck. I looked down at the bottom of the article and it's penned by Sylvain Dupree. So I'm like, motherfucker. The guy who gets me into storyboarding has now like taken all my hopes and dreams and has just like crushed them. I didn't come this far with my dream to just have you fucking step on it, even though you were the guy that kind of opened my eyes, if you will, to this whole job or this whole thing that I wanted to be a part of. And now you're stomping on my dream. So I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm still going forward with this. You know, because this guy got in somehow. Now, I'm not saying I'm as good as this guy, but if he got in, I can get in. You know, that's, that was the thinking at the time. So I was like, I'm going for it. Besides what I have to lose, I'm working at a screen door store. So. <laughs> this is Trevor Forrest. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. In the beginning of my career, uh, John Matheson was helpful enough to help me get started, and so I ended up in India. Part of being in India, crazy stuff happens all the time, finding amazing stories and things to do all the time. And one thing that happened was the director friend of mine said, would I help him film a heart operation? His friend was a heart surgeon, and he was doing this very groundbreaking heart surgery. So I thought, okay, sure, I'll just go and plant a couple of cameras, I'll walk out, and that'll be it. So I walked in, and he said, okay, and turn over, and action. It's like, what do you mean action? It's like, they'd opened this gentleman's chest. You could see the ends of his ribs. You could see his beating heart in front of me. And I was, luckily I had a camera on a set of sticks on some wheels. And I, I definitely had wiped it down, but I don't know if I disinfected it. But um, I was in this, in this hospital room <laughs> filming this heart surgery and again seeing this beating heart of this man who was covered head to toe in iodine and just yellow and it was a very surreal experience and I don't quite know how I kept it together for so long but we're in there for a few hours and I, it helps me looking through the eyepiece as a cameraman I think that just you know helps you separate from reality nicely Anyway, so I was in India for another maybe couple of weeks. This gentleman who had had the heart operation, he said, oh, I hear you filmed me having my heart operation. I saw it. It's very impressive. Thank you very much. I'd like to buy you lunch. And it's, you know, in India, they love food and, you know, you can't say no to lunch. So 
so I meet this man for lunch and we have this really simple dinner it was beautiful like some naan bread and some dal and roti and delicious yogurt and stuff like that but and all of this food was amazing but I could not take my eyes off of his chest he was wearing this white shirt um, done up you can, you can see, you couldn't see his scar but this sort of a gleaming white shirt the sun was hitting it and I could hear his voice and I, was, I felt a bit rude because I wasn't really looking at his eyes he was talking to me all I could think about is this man's beating heart under his chest under his white shirt behind his ribs and I really just seen this man as like a vessel uh, and now they sort of you know put the voice back in the toy man or something you know it was like it was incredible so I, I like talking about the story because now I'm going to dream or think about it again. Like, you know, my wife, she's had a baby. And, you, know, you see all kinds of things when you're having a baby as well. But yeah, the inside of somebody's body and then having a, a conversation with them over dinner is a very life affirming. It goes beyond philosophy. It doesn't, you can't be pretentious about it. It's what it is. It's like this man is, is alive and he was just a vessel two weeks ago. War stories. So that was Tony Liberatore and Trevor Forrest. And who do we have next? Uh, up next is Iris Ng. So I've never been the kind of camera person to feel like I need to go to countries of conflict or, or any of the red zones in the world. I never thought I would go to Iraq. <laughs> but a filmmaker that I, I had worked with on a film about Loretta Lynn, uh, Vikram Jayanti, he was working on a film about Neanderthals for the BBC. Part of the film was to shoot at this cave where the richest Neanderthal archaeological site exists. It's in part of Kurdish Iraq, and the cave is called Shanadar Cave. We were going to go along with this and observe this archaeological dig and shoot this segment there, and it was really exciting, and we planned this for a long time, and it takes a long time to get there. Um, I think I flew through Istanbul, and from there flew to Erbil, and had this weird experience next to this person on this really crowded flight where he was having some kind of episode, and he was an elderly gentleman, and he was dropping magazines on people's heads and, and, and touching me and leaning on me sometimes, and it was just the most stressful flight I'd ever been on. But you go through the trouble of getting there, and we arrive in Erbil, and so much of the planning of any documentary is, and so much rides on access and for this particular shoot, access could only be gained by being on the ground. It's not something we could call an office to do. We had to go there to talk to the consulates and massage all the proper antiquities departments to get a permit to shoot at this cave. So it meant a day and a half going to the president's nephew's residence, which is happens to be a big stable. We had to, to oblige was every wish because we this was our, our access was riding on on his being pleased with us so we had to ride his horses for half a day and this was all part of our this was all part of our process and we had to meet with all these consulates so finally we get the permission from him he says okay you can shoot at the cave great we drive to Shanadar and we arrive the next day all ready to shoot and we schlepped some gear up this hill and it's about, and there's probably 500 steps that lead you up to the cave itself. And we decide that I should pop off a shot right at the bottom because it looks so beautiful. It's got this sort of architectural curve to it. And I think I hit record and then somebody walks by and said, excuse me, do you have permission to shoot here? And he said, yes. And he said, no, you don't. And so there's this whole kerfuffle around the, pro the proper permissions that we supposedly didn't get. We didn't go to the Minister of Antiquities, we went to the wrong person. They don't own this archaeological site. The president's nephew doesn't own the archaeological site, the Department of Antiquities does. Doesn't matter, we were shut down for half a day. We took our gear up and we just had to sit there 
while we had come all this way. It's a beautiful cave. This team was, was doing their dig and all this stuff is happening where you're asked to do something that's so difficult as a documentarian, which is to do nothing. I mean, the producers were tearing their hair out trying to figure out how to get this permit. I may or may not have been shooting some, some visuals while they were negotiating, but we finally get the permission. You can shoot, we'll figure out the permit tomorrow. So we finally get the go ahead after like four hours of waiting around in this beautiful cave where, where Neanderthals were found that have been preserved for 60,000 years. We could finally roll on this scene where there's a conversation between the host and this archeologist and we're just standing I had to stand on the other side of this pit. The dig was part of the scene. And we start rolling and they're talking and I'm just, I'm tripping over the rocks and I'm trying not to fall in. I can't get any good angles because I'm too far away and, and any coverage that I feel like I need, I can't because I have to negotiate this pit. So the director, I think we stopped rolling for a few minutes and he looks at me and he said, what, <laughs> what's going on? And I said, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really not working, is it? said no. He took me aside and we had this really honest conversation about what we do and we admitted to ourselves and he just said we've lost our mojo. So what are we going to do about it? All this planning that we had done around the shots and, and our intentions had all gone out the window because nothing, none of it was possible anymore and we had especially been thrown off our game because of all these delays. So time was running out and he just said, okay, this is what we do. We shoot bits of the cave, we shoot in the background, a couple of pans. You know, he just figured out a way to, to distill what we needed in the time that we had. We got everybody to, to up their game so that we could get this shot. It really showed me how that directing relationship is really about knowing how to direct a cinematographer as well. And having sort of an ally to have these conversations where you can be really honest and talk about what's not working. It is a testament to all documentary shooting, which is that you can go in with the best laid plans and, and do all of the preconception that you want. But if you can't roll with every punch that comes to you, you're not going to come out with anything. War stories. All right, so next up we have an oldie but a goodie. I remember this one from back in the day. It's a, a quite a story from Bill Totolo. The gig was I was doing press for Survivor. I was working at TV Guide, and CBS has a part ownership in TV Guide, so they had their own in-house crew go out and do it, and so did TV Guide. But a friend of mine had done that for like a decade. His name is Greg Cabrera. Greg was about 52 and sadly passed away of a heart attack. So it was very bittersweet. Like, it was a great, great gig, but very sad the way I got it. We're going to interview every contestant, so there's like 20 contestants. Then we're going to go shoot the first challenge. Then we're going to shoot a little bit of life in the camp. And then we're going to do first tribal council. And then we have to go home. And it takes about eight days. So we fly, I think it was like 14 hours to Manila. And then another three hours up to Tagagero. And then another three hour drive up to Cagayan Valley where we were. So we're really remote. It's really hot. We didn't really have a lot of food. And the reporter next to me goes down and starts having a seizure. She was just dehydrated, turns out. Literally, the medic was there in under five minutes, put a saline drip into her. They did everything right. They got her into the hospital. She was fine. They just had to put her into a hospital for 24 hours. But that's day one, my first day on the job. Day two, we had like a really early call time, like 3 a.m., and we were wrapped by 2 o'clock because we were doing the first challenge. We had to get the sunset, everybody arriving by helicopter, by boat, by jeep. It's really dramatic, and we had a lot of fun shooting it. So we're wrapped by two o'clock. One of my buddies, who shall remain nameless, is like a world-class surfer. Super buff guy, very healthy. 
but he wants to go out and enjoy some surf in the Philippines because he'll be able to check that off his bucket list. So there were some dark clouds and he sarcastically says to his assistant, hey, nobody finds me, send out search patrol. We proceed to go to the resort that Survivor had built for the Philippine government there. One of the army bases got wiped out by a tsunami and so literally they go in and rebuilt it and tur turned into a five-star resort. So we're in the heated Olympic-sized swimming pool. We're drinking Filipino beer. We're just having a good time unwinding. And yeah, a storm rolls in. And they ask us to get out of the pool. I'm like, no, we're not getting out of the pool. You know, we're all salty, you know. We're drinking beers. Like, we're spending money. So we're fine. It, it was fine. But my buddy's assistant comes running up. She's like, hey, have you seen so-and-so? Uh, uh, I haven't seen him. I know he went out surfing. Has anybody seen him? I'm a little concerned. We're having a couple beers while I'm wine. I went, he's fine. He's a big boy. I'm sure he's just on the shore drying off. She, She's like, no, really, I think I'm a little concerned. You know, the storm looks pretty bad out there. Should we send out a search party? And we're like, he went out doing what he loved. <laughs> we're really giving it to him. They're like, you know, he would want us to carry on, you know. Turns out he did get washed out to sea. They found him holed up on Turtle Island, freezing, and <laughs> just nothing but his trunks. I think by day three, most of the crew got hit by intestinal virus. And I was very hesitant to check in because they flew me halfway around the world. I'm trying to do my job, trying to be professional, but it's like 90 degrees out and I've got the chills and cold sweats and I realize my joints ache. I, I've got to admit that I'm not feeling well. So I go into the medic begrudgingly and I have to sign in a ledger. The ledger's like three inches thick. So the whole crew is signed in, like 400 people. First thing she says to me, she goes, well, I don't think it's dengue fever because they had a couple of people get dengue fever, which is really bad. It's like malaria. So I'm like, let's not open with, I don't think it's dengue fever. <laughs> I got rid of the virus. I blew it out in like 24 hours. I was fine. So that was like that day. I guess around the fourth or fifth day, we had to go out to the island to shoot some, I guess, lifestyle shots of them coping with the island. They warned us like, you know, the ocean's a little rough. Bag all your gear up. And so we went out on this like 20 foot by 10 foot aluminum boat. And yeah, it was like four foot swells and we're going out there. Yeah, and I was actually kind of enjoying it. I put a GoPro on some speed rail and I'm getting great shots of that. But yeah, the publicist looking a little green, but for the most part, it was kind of fun. And we get out there to the island and the island is just gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's surrounded in uh, just shells and coral and just it's like paradise. But they literally had to carve in like a camp for one team, a camp for the other. And then down the middle was camera camp. Like, it was really uninhabitable. It was just all jungle. So we get off the boat. We make a water landing. We get into uh, camera camp. And we're just getting some water, getting some supplies, cleaning the cameras before we take off and shoot the two camps. And I just happen to notice nobody's directing my attention to anything, but there's some computer printouts of dangerous indigenous species on the picnic table. And I'm thinking, it's probably common sense for me to acquaint myself with this. Picture, if you will, four computer laminated pictures of snakes. And so one is a black snake, one's a brown snake, one's a green snake. Black snake says, this black snake likes to hang out in the foliage, mildly poisonous. If you get bit, we have antidote, come back to camp. Green snake hangs out in the trees and the leaves, hard to see, look up for him, mildly poisonous. If you get bit, come back to base camp. Brown snake, same thing. The last snake is a picture of a coiled up snake with his mouth wide open launching at you. It's called flying snake. So now I am paranoid. I can't do my job. I'm walking around looking for the black snake, the brown snake. I'm listening for the coiled up flying snake. We're going back to base camp from the island and the waves had gone to 12 feet. 
So now we're in this little boat and waves are breaking over the bow and people are throwing up and the gear is just washing everywhere. It's, it's protected in plastic bags, but picture your boat going vertical and then crashing into the ocean. And we are two miles out and I realize if this boat goes down, I'm not getting to shore. We are in deep ocean. We're piloting the boat between jagged rocks. So it's literally the only moment on a shoot where I ever felt nobody's got my back out here. There's no swift water rescue. There's no rescue team. You know, I literally looked up and I prayed to God and I said, if you take me, just please take me fast. Just don't let a fish eat me. I mean, I just realized my, my life's not in my hands at that point. Hindsight being 2020, it was a great adventure. And I was so happy to be on it, but we started out with seizures, buddy getting washed out to shore, flying snakes, don't let a fish eat me. War stories. And that was Bill Totolo's war story. And next up is Johnny Durango. So on the last night of shooting a small town crime, we're doing a flashback scene, which involves a shootout. And we're back at this industrial train depot where we shot our largest scale set for the entire movie. We are 34 days in, this is day 35, and there's, there's no turning back. We have to finish the movie tonight. There's no money to go over budget. We've got to get it done. And sadly, our only source of light on the set was a condor, which was a giant backlight. We had some ground lights that were providing skims and, and front light, but our condor was our main source of lighting, and a windstorm blew in. And if you know anything working with condors, once the wind gets over a certain amount of miles per hour, you have to pull the condor down. So as the night goes on, the wind starts to pick up and my gaffer who has a wind meter on it says, this is done, we gotta bring it down. So we huddle with the producers and the directors and everybody agrees for safety reasons, we have to bring it down. So it comes down. As it comes down, one of our 5Ks blows over, smashes the lens. It's okay, we got a couple more 5Ks. Wind tapers down a little bit, we put it back up in the air, we keep shooting. Everything's going good. Another 5K blows over and shatters. Gaffer says we got to bring the uh, condor down again. So now we're getting into a situation where this is our last night of shooting. There's, there's no turning back. We have to get this sequence done to make the movie. There's nobody who's going to give us more money to, to finish this sequence if we don't get it. So it's sort of do or die. We continue on and another 5K blows over. And at this point, the uh, the gaffer comes and huddles with me and the producers and said, this is gonna continue to happen. We've got every single sandbag we have on this thing. Stands are bending because of the wind. We're just gonna have to wait it out and, and shoot intermittently in between. So we continue to do this and it's going well. The sequence is looking great, but it's clearly a hazardous condition and we have to play it safe. And I can see the sun starting to come up and I know I have one more shot that I have to get and the shot involves the lead actor sitting on the back of an ambulance and it takes place in the evening. So the sun is starting to come up. I can see on my monitor, even if I throw an ND, stuff like that, it's starting to look like day. So I get the idea, what we need to do is we grab the DIT tent, we take the DIT tent, I think the grips are running it over, we put it over the back of the ambulance and throw down three of the four sides. I look on the monitor and it's a close enough match that I'm like, go, go, go. And we shoot the shot and we get it. And it's absolutely beautiful. War stories. That was Johnny Durango. Uh, side note: I edited Johnny Durango's uh, in, uh, main podcast interview 
while I was in the hospital with my wife uh, and she was getting ready to give birth. Like she was writhing in pain with an epidural and I was sitting there on the very laptop I'm using right now, clickety-clack, editing Johnny Durango's interview, which in itself is a war story within a war story. I, I'm so glad that you that you were, uh, you were a good father from the beginning, even, you know, before your child was born. get You got your priorities straight, getting the podcast out. Got my priorities <laughs> dead straight. So the last one is, this is one we've been excited to release. That's right. This is, this is a premiere. It's never been heard before. Very excited to, uh, to bring it to you right now. Uh, this is the war story from Alex Winter. Alex Winter, one, one of my new favorite war stories of all time. Definitely one of the most amazing ones we've ever had. Back in my day, there was no there was no shooting on iPhones. There were no there was no having a DSLR. There was only the world of film, and that meant if you were a poor film student or a poor ex-film student and you wanted to make stuff, you had to be very very resourceful. So I would have to say that almost my entire youth filmmaking experience was one extended war story. I was making music videos for many years, and even the big MTV music videos of a certain kind of guerrilla style and I and I liked things feeling kind of organic and in your face and and I was making a music video for a band called Helmet I believe the song was Wilma's Rainbow and uh, I wanted to shoot them live but I couldn't really uh, get a massive film crew into this this little uh, club in London where they were playing I think it was called the Astoria 2 I owned a, you know an A16 spring wound Bolex reflex camera and it's a 16 millimeter wind-up camera, MOS, obviously. And I had that for many, many years. Um, and I shot a lot of stuff at NYU Film School on it. And I actually still have that camera. I think I had like some really long, clumsy Canon lens mount, you know, on it. It's got this crazy mount. My point is that it's basically like holding a giant metal brick with a protruding piece of glass on it. It would be laughable to anybody of this day and age uh, to be using such a tool for for that purpose. There I am in the in the at the front of the stage because I need to get the shots that I need, and I'm filming the band. And it's their encore, and I've only got one shot at getting them. I don't have anyone with me. I don't. I can't. I don't have an AD. I don't have a PA. I don't have a grip or a gaff. Me and my Bolex, my wind-up Bolex, in a throbbing mosh pit and helmet on stage. Suddenly, like everything goes red, and I'm like, "What the hell? Like they they've got these crazy like filtration things going on on the stage. What's going on?" I like look up for my bullocks, nothing's red. I look back at my bullocks, everything's red. And I'm like, "What the hell? Why is it like? What's going on with my camera? Like I pull off the, I'm losing time. I've got one shot at the song. It's the song that the the video was made for, obviously, and I'm like panicking. Right, the clock is ticking. I'm literally breaking this thing apart. It's like breaking apart like a like a 1920s Russian rifle, right? It's that crude, like pulling off the mount, pulling out, like do like a red filter, somehow make it in front of the thing. No, so I screw everything back together, go back up. And now the red is gone. I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then the red shows up again. I'm like, what the hell is going on? All of a sudden I get surrounded by like bouncers and stuff like that. And I get dragged out of the mosh pit. And it turns out that a stage diver had dove off the stage, kicked my lens full force driving the camera into my face, blew my face wide open. My nose was like literally broken in three places and just split open like a hot dog that had been left too long on the grill. Blood is just everywhere. 
people in the in the audience were freaking out. My my eye cup was filling up with blood. I was so in the moment, I didn't even notice. I didn't notice that the guy had kicked me. I didn't notice that I was bleeding profusely, that my face was like an open wound. I didn't notice that my eye cup was filling up with blood. I was like shooting with a wind-up camera. I only had 30-second runs. I had to wind, 30-second run, wind. And I only had one shot at getting the song. The typical end result of that story is all of the film was great. Uh, the great thing about cameras in those days is you could literally throw them off a building and they would keep shooting. Uh, and that one did. So all that footage ended up in the movie, but um, I still have a scar, actually a scar on the bridge of my nose from, from where I got split open. War stories. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How was that? Wasn't that a great war story? I, I mean, we have not been overstating how awesome that war story was, and Alex Winter is just as punk rock as a human being he, could he be. He delivered. He totally, totally delivered. It was a great story. I'm so glad I'm so glad he told it to us. Uh, all right, so Ben, that wraps up War Stories 5. That's very, very exciting, and we, uh, we can't wait to get you War Story 6. I don't know how we top Alex Winter's story, but we'll do our best. Yeah, maybe there's some people out there. Maybe you've got war stories. Maybe we should do a contest. Maybe we should do a contest where um, if you've got an incredible war story, uh, you know, maybe you should uh, send us an email, something we can figure it out. And Just we can... record it. Record it yeah, on record your voice it. memo and send us a file. Send us a file. Maybe we'll use it. Maybe it'll become uh, the next great war story compilation. Maybe it'll make it. Feel free to email us if you want specific directions, but really just tell your story yeah you don't have to add the the music and the sound effects we can do all that but you know we'll yeah. do all that yeah you yeah. you you got a great story you want to tell us send it send it our way we, we can't wait to hear it until next time thank you <laughs> <laughs> this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.